The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining. All right, welcome to another episode of The Unlikely Innovators. This is, of course, Steve Gravel, and I'm joined, as always, by... Mike Comito. Steve, how you doing? I'm doing really well today. We had an awesome guest. We had Amber Mack, who is, of course, the president of Amber, Back, Amber Mack Media. Um, I, I just thought it was a great conversation. We really had to up our game because she is a professional podcaster, and we're doing this sort of armchair. Uh, so I think we had to really uh, think about professionalize, uh, pr- professionalizing our approach. Yeah, no, she really put us on our heels, but I think uh, I think we held our own and it was a great convo. I think obviously learned a lot, I think, from her just in terms of how, you know, I think how a podcast should be done and I think how to engage with a guest. But I think also uh, just her her insights on, you know, some of the tech trends that are happening in Canada right now. I think she had some really pointed uh, observations about what's happening in ag tech, which I think is a, probably a whole other conversation that we could have that uh, that I think she probably could have talked about uh, ad nauseum, but we kind of left it at, at cows wearing Fitbits. But I think that's something that we're going to want to pick up <laughs> at, at another point. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's every time we talk to a new guest, we just have other ideas of who else to have on. And I think, uh, you know, having someone on from the ag tech space would be a really uh, cool podcast. But anyways, we won't stand in the way of that. Uh, we now give you Amber Mack. We're now pleased to be joined by Amber Mack. Amber is president of Amber Mack Media, an award-winning content development agency. In, 2000, in 2021, Amber was named one of the Bay Street Bull Women of the Year for her leadership in the technology sector. In 2018, she was named one of DMZ's 30 inspirational women making a difference in tech. Amber has keynoted more than 400 events around the world and has moderated sessions with everyone from Justin Trudeau to Chris Hadfield. Uh, She's also hosted and co-hosted a variety of podcast series, including The AI Effect, Marketing Disrupted, The Feed, Command, and uh, This is Mining, which we're going to talk about today, and of course, The Amber Mack Show. In 2010, she wrote the national bestselling business book, Power Friending, and in 2016, she co-wrote the Amazon bestseller, Outsmarting Your Kids Online, something that I might have to figure out in the next couple of years. Uh, She is a regular business host and expert for Fast Company, CNN, Bloomberg, CBS, BNN, CTV, Maryland Dennis Show, and Sirius XM, where of course you can find The Feed, and now she is a guest of The Unlikely Innovators. So welcome to the show, Amber. Pleased to have you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's our pleasure. So one of the things that you had in your bio that I deliberately left out because we wanted to ask you about it was that as a child, you attended a two-room country schoolhouse and shared a party telephone line with neighboring houses. And now you're recognized internationally as an innovation and technology leader. Did you ever think, you know, growing up as a kid in PEI that that would have been possible? When I was growing up in PEI, I definitely did not think it was possible for me to pursue a career, especially in technology, because as you mentioned, there really wasn't a lot of technology around me at the time. And I do think that for anyone who has grown up in a rural area, there are a couple of things that uh, that helps in terms of your long-term career. And it helps in terms of your creativity. It helps uh, in terms of being able to kind of dream big. And for me growing up in PEI, I think it really uh, allowed me to recognize that there were opportunities out there, but I just didn't know what they were. And so it was kind of a blank slate. And I think when you're young and you have that blank slate and you're able to really create your dream job or dream business, it's fairly exciting. And I'm fortunate that I've been able to do just that. 
I know that Steve's licking his chops because I think this speaks to, <laughs> speaks to the way that he grew up. So we'll get, I'll let him jump in in a second, but I just wanted to ask you because obviously you'd mentioned that, you know, you didn't have a lot of technology. So certainly you probably wouldn't have envisioned where you are now, but did you have an ideal career path that you thought about maybe in those younger days where maybe tech wasn't in the cards, but you had something else in mind that you thought you were going to do? The one thing that I always wanted to do when I was younger, and this was probably more into my uh, tween years or teen years, is that I always wanted to be a journalist. And so I had my mind set on being a television reporter or an anchor in a news station. And then I was lucky because right out of journalism school, I actually got a job at CBC Charlottetown in television on air at a really young age. And I did that for a couple of months and very quickly, I realized that I did not want to do this forever. It felt like Groundhog Day. It felt like I was reporting on a world that was happening around me. And what I really wanted was to be part of the world that was changing. And so I soon after moved out to San Francisco during the dot-com boom and then felt as though I was part of that change versus reporting on it. Yeah. And I think like, I mean, first of all, I'm sure that's a, uh, a, a good culture shock you took when you left uh, Charlottetown and, and made your way to the other coast of our continent in, in San Francisco. Um, so being part of the dot-com boom, like super interesting experience. Um, how do you think that's informed your approach and, and how you view technology and technological change as it relates to business as well? Well, I think one of the advantages of being out in San Francisco during the late 1990s is that uh, all around us, what you saw was companies uh, springing up and then within months failing. And so you really recognize during that time, and this is something, again, I feel very uh, fortunate to have experienced, is that uh, I was able to watch this incredible ecosystem being born right in front of me. And I was so young that I didn't really necessarily have a say in how it was going to be built. But I got to be this really great observer of the change that was taking place. And throughout that process, uh, I recognize, especially when it comes to startups and innovation, uh, how much uh, a lot of that uh, was not necessarily legitimate. And, and I say that because I saw so many companies getting funding. And even in my early 20s, you know, I was amazed to see them getting so much money and blowing so much money so quickly, because there was nothing substantial that they were even building. And I, I felt like that was a good lesson to go through, because throughout my career, I've always asked questions about software companies in terms of what exactly they do, startups, getting them to explain exactly what they're offering. And there's a lot of red flags that go off when people just talk about how much money they've raised and not necessarily about the solution that they've built that could potentially change, you know, their town or the world. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely got to be concrete in those walls when, when you start to evaluate a company like that, right? It's, uh, you know, we, we've had a number of founders on and, and you have to identify really early on what problem are we solving and are we solving a problem uh, for that to be sustainable. And I think that was probably the early pitfalls of some of those some of those companies that started to get that money easily from from venture capital. Right. I mean, I think we're a bit better at that now. Maybe we could talk about it in, in, in a little bit. But, uh, you know, the ease at which you get capital um, should be related to how good your idea is and how, how how many people it serves. Right. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and the the biggest red flag for me, and I'll never forget this, I was working at a software startup in the Presidio area of San Francisco, and I was one of the early employees. And I remember that uh, at the time, we had actually rented plants, and we rented plants for our office so that it looked cool and trendy. And we didn't even water our own plants, even though most of us were in our 20s. We actually hired people to come in and water the plants. And as someone who grew up in Prince Edward Island, where I was used to getting my hands dirty, and my father was very entrepreneurial, it struck me as very odd and unsustainable that all of us as capable people were watching these people come in with rented plants, watering plants. And these are the type of things we spent money on. And I had this sort of practical view that I brought to Silicon Valley where I started to see holes in terms of the sustainability of many of these businesses. And, and I continue to see that today. You know, that's Yeah, that's. I'm sure we could probably have a lot of other, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of interesting threads that we could tug on with that. But one of the things I wanted to ask was just, you know, we recently had Megan Simpson from BetaKit on, um, we talked about a number of things, you know, especially, you know, Canada's burgeoning tech sector. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about is how, you know, just kind of building off the San Francisco question that people know about Silicon Valley and like it's it's a hub of tech. And, you know, even people in the general public who may not necessarily know, you know, what these tech companies and startups are doing, the name resonates with them. Right. And so one of the things that Megan and, you know, BetaKid have been talking about is kind of resisting these comparisons that Canada is Silicon Valley North. And so I wanted to ask you. Um, do you think that that type of comparison is useful because at least contextualizes things? Or do you think that given the rich tech sector we have in Canada, that we should be striving for something that is more unique and distinctive to what we're doing, uh, you know, north, uh, north of the border? Well, I should probably say <laughs> there have been points during my career where I have probably referenced uh, Silicon Valley North. So I apologize in advance <laughs> for what I'm about to say, because I think I was wrong in those references in that uh, I'm not sure that that's what we should aspire to be, right? You know, I feel the same way about technology leaders. If you look at many of the most high-powered technology leaders of today, a lot of them are arrogant, uh, egomaniacs. Uh, they are not necessarily leaders that we would want to replicate. And I think the same can be said of the culture in Silicon Valley. So it would be interesting in Canada as a much more inclusive country to be able to develop our own techies ecosystem that was built by people who, again, uh, were a, a more diverse group of people and build solutions, again, uh, that served a purpose beyond just making money. Yeah, and I think um, just going back to, it's it seems as though I, I don't have much experience in what they call the Valley. You know that someone's like been in like the VC world uh, long enough when they refer to that just as the Valley, right? Which, which I, <laughs> which I love as a concept, but um, it seems that uh, there's something about the Canadian ecosystem that is uh, not as cutthroat, a, a couple speeds, a bit slower by design um, that, that just, you know, I think you're quite right. We shouldn't aspire to be, you know, what they make movies about, but more like what they build communities about, you know, which is those, those, those companies are going to stick around for a while and, and employ some people and, and be meaningful. Right. 
Yeah, I think that's really important when we think about the future of the tech ecosystem in Canada is uh, what do we want to be? Who do we want to represent? What type of communities do we want to support? And I certainly think, again, if we go back to what I talked about off the top of the show, there really is kind of a blank slate. You know, we have incredible talent in this country. Uh, We have uh, good uh, research dollars in terms of investment uh, in research across uh, lots of different uh, uh, technologies. Technologies. Uh, but what we don't have, I think, is the ability for us to commercialize some of those products. We tend to be a very sort of hesitant uh, group of people when it comes to building businesses. Uh, but I hope there is a shift that happens. And, you know, maybe during this pandemic, many people have seen the, the opportunities that do exist. And maybe even we're able to accelerate the momentum that we're seeing right now. You're hearing more and more about Canadian companies that are, are starting to make headway, more unicorns, so to to speak. And uh, it could be a really exciting time for this country. Yeah, I, I think uh, there's been a lot of uh, really cool unicorns in waiting that have sort of been in uh, in sort of dark mode for a long time. And hopefully we start to see those uh, coming out as the pandemic hopefully starts to lift. Um, so Mike and I have done, gosh, this this would probably be, we're still under 40 on, on how many podcasts we've done. Yeah. Um, you've keynoted you know, 400 events and have been host and moderator of countless other events. Um, we have a hard time sort of preparing for weekly guests <laughs> and, and being that sort of chameleon and knowing a little bit about everyone. How do you prepare to approach things as a, as a moderator for topics that are maybe outside your wheelhouse or that you've never sort of tackled before that first time you're on stage? Well, here's a, a little secret. Uh, I started my tech career really beyond Silicon Valley, but working with Leo Laporte, who many may know in the, the podcast here, he's a technology expert out of the Bay Area. And I worked with him on a show called Call for Help on G4 Tech TV. And when I went to that show, they thought that my role would be to answer phones from callers calling in with tech questions. And I was like, uh-uh, I want to be a, a host. I want my own desk. I don't want to sit there and, and, and answer calls. No disrespect to people who do that. But I really wanted to be an equal player. And from that moment on, I recognized that as a woman in technology, and hopefully this has gotten better, there was no real room for me to make mistakes. <laughs> and so I think in the early days, I really started to understand that one of the things I had to do was to research every single topic to a great degree and and really make this whole world of technology not just part of what I do professionally but also part of my life personally so everything I read is is related back to this world of innovation and technology and change and I've felt as I as though I needed to really immerse myself in that because there wasn't again that room for error being a, a woman in that space. Obviously now I think you know there's a little more wiggle room and hopefully if I make a mistake people are more forgiving. But certainly during that time, uh, if I made a, a mistake, uh, I, I got you know hundreds of emails sent into me from viewers and and they were not so happy. And so that really kind of framed my relationship with technology in the sense that. Uh, this isn't something you can fake. You guys know this, you know, you can't decide to be a tech expert and then get on a podcast because it will be so transparent within seconds that you have no freaking idea what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's interesting. You find that way with, uh, you know, the CEOs that don't really know their tech, you know, you you can see that a lot of the time. I I told this to Mike before about uh, founder voice that uh, when I used to work at OCE, we used to hear countless pitch practices, right? 
and they'd end up getting in this some some founders would would often think it's it's about what you sound like when you're on dragon's den or shark tank right uh, you have those key points to hit when what everyone in the room wants is just some some uh someone to be genuine right and i think that's that's what uh what you have to do when you approach talking to different people each week is have that curiosity and and that genuine uh you know want to understand and also admit that you don't know everything right yeah, and yeah. and and this is something that i think uh a lot of people uh fall into in terms of being a trap of interviewing or moderating or whatever it might be is that they think that they know everything and i i think the best place to play is exactly what you said you know be curious do your homework understand at a, a general level what you're talking about but also at the same time be able to admit when you maybe don't know the answer to something you know don't make things up on the fly and i think if you approach uh really any type of content in that way you can have really rich and interesting conversations and also don't assume that the audience knows more than they do i mean this That's is right. the number one mistake that I see people make all the time in speaking, in podcasting, in any type of, of content creation is they often overestimate what the audience understands because they want to sound smart. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the simplest questions are the best questions, right? Sometimes if For you just sure. say why or how, you know, that's one word. Why are we afraid of, of asking simple questions? Yeah, I, th I think that's that's something that's a process I've had to kind of deal with over the years, just I think even, you know, I do some sports writing on the side, and I would get invited on podcasts to talk about hockey. And, you know, they would ask me questions where my job, my side job wasn't to cover the game, I used to write, I write hockey history stories, and they would ask me about like, well, what do you think the Maple Leafs need to do, you know, to improve their puck possession, and it would be like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a beat reporter, I don't really understand, like what they would do. Like, I mean, I have my ideas, but I'm certainly not an authority. And I think, I often felt the need to try to provide an answer, even though like I'm sure anybody listening to it probably thought that like Mike doesn't know anything about, you know, power play deployment. And over time you get more comfortable, I think in your wheelhouse and you say to them, like, I don't know how to answer that question, but like, I'm sure there's a lot of smarter people than me who've already written up, uh, you know, things like that. But I think that's definitely, I think having that humility is important. I mean, I think the reason why Steve and I wanted to do this was because we wanted to kind of get the word out there about college applied research, but we quickly realized that, you know, after we started the few episodes by ourselves, but we wouldn't be able to carry the range of topics, just the two of us, because it'd become pretty apparent that, uh, you know, we're not leaders in all of these spaces. That's why having guests like you come on is, is great. Uh, certainly, I think we like to try to prepare as much as we can, but certainly we are not the experts. That's why, uh, that's why we have the guests on. And it's okay then to take your expertise in terms of the history of hockey and answer that question in the context of your expertise. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that that is not your problem during that interview. That is the host's problem. <laughs> so yeah. they yeah. should know that wasn't a question for you, right? And so yeah. they, you know, it can be reframed and say, hey, I don't know today exactly what they should do. But historically, if you look at the success of the Leafs, it's because of blah, 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 right? And, and you know, you learn those, those ways to be able to kind of take your expertise and, and let it shine. And also at the same time, I think, admit that you don't know everything about every topic. Yeah, I almost, I almost find myself, I used to like tell them, you know what you're getting into, right? I cannot answer these questions, but I'd be happy to talk about this if you'd like. So it's, it's worked well, but, but uh, you know, enough about, enough about the Maple Leafs, enough about hockey, although because <laughs> I, I could see Steve, uh, we try to keep the hockey a little bit quieter on the, on like the innovators, but there's always, there's always time for a quick reference. But one of the things we wanted to ask you about was, uh, you know, was this is mining. You started, co you started hosting that in 2020 
with uh, with the OMA, and it's now obviously an award-winning podcast. You won the Canadian Podcasters Award this past year. Uh, so you've done two seasons with that, covering everything from climate change to you know the adoption of autonomous equipment underground. Um, if you were to look back on those two seasons, is there one thing that you've taken away from the mining industry uh, after being a part of that show? Well, I think one of the most exciting things about doing that series and one of the things that really made me want to be involved with it is that, <laughs> admittedly, I didn't know a lot about the mining industry. And we all have these stereotypes in terms of how we envision mining of today. You know, we think of it as something that uh, is happening in an environment that isn't all that clean. It's very dangerous. You know, we have these uh, visuals in our head of what mining looks like. And throughout that series, what has been so exciting is recognizing that mining of today with all the technology that exists is very different than what it was decades ago. And so I really loved during the two seasons being able to meet people who work in the mining industry and maybe people that you would not have expected work in that industry at all. And so we tried to kind of break stereotypes uh, in that industry. You know, one of the episodes we did was with a trans woman in that industry and talked about her experiences. Uh, we talked to a woman who's developed workwear for people who uh, worked doing labor from, uh, uh, she works for a company called, or built a company called Cover Gals, which maybe you've heard of. So yep. to me, it was really kind of demystifying the mining sector of the future and what's happening here in Ontario. So we don't have these preconceived notions of what mining is that are quite frankly, just totally dated. Yeah. And I think that's a great jumping off point, uh, for, for something I wanted to ask you to, uh, it seems to be something that we ask people, um, whoever has like a good um, history and background in marketing, we tend to ask this too. So we asked Terry O'Reilly a couple of weeks back, um, you know, how would you rebrand mining so that people knew it wasn't the backbreaking work that our grandfathers and grandmothers did, right? Um, you're, you're a marketing expert. You co-hosted a, a podcast um, called Marketing Disrupted. Um, what what do you think, like everyone says uh, mining has a PR problem. How would you approach that? I know no one's being paid to, to do this for the mining sector, but but what do you what do you think? Where do you think the the messaging lies uh, in that in that sort of Rubik's Cube? Well, I, I think the mining industry, like many industries, has perhaps depended on mainstream media to be able to shape their narrative. Now, uh, we all know there are a couple of problems with that. One is <laughs> there's just too much happening in our world today uh, to be able to get the stories told that you think need to be told. And uh, the second is that it's not so much a problem, but uh, knowing that people are spending more and more time online, there's an opportunity to connect with people where they actually are. And so I would argue if you're trying to rebrand an industry like mining, even doing what we did with the podcast series was a great place to start doing more in the digital space, telling more stories about the people, because you can no longer depend on mainstream media covering those stories for you in a way that you want them covered. And so it's important to understand that when we talk about shaping the narrative of the future, that every industry has to take ownership of that and not necessarily depend on other voices to do that for them. And, and in the mining industry, I think they were for a long time, probably depending on, uh, you know, those more traditional voices to be able to uh, do that for them. And they were speaking perhaps to an audience that they always spoke to. And they sort of recognized over the past little while that they wanted to bring in a new audience and educate people in a different way. And so that was a, a pretty smart move. And I think you can apply that model, quite frankly, mm -hmm. to pretty much any industry or even to an individual. 
Yeah, it's it's so interesting you say that because I, I hadn't considered that because of course they use, you know, traditional media methods. I remember, gosh, it was only like three years ago. I saw a, like the lead in sort of, you know, sometimes news outlets have the like the file video or the file photos of a subject they want to cover. And some of it was like, it was like a head frame picture from it had to have been the 80s. And then a group of men who have obviously come off shift with like dirty faces and they were going to go, go then talk about like, I think electrification in the mining sector. It's like, that's really the wrong message. If that's the lead in, you know, people are already, you know, putting that in their minds as like an antiquated sector if they see that lead in. Right. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. And I mean, I've been to PDAC before the big mining conference that takes mm -hmm. place in Toronto. And uh, you even see how uh, within that event, how important uh, traditional media is, because we know that they often set up a big booth for uh, our yeah. national uh, business uh, network. And so the spotlight is all turned on that, uh, that network. And so again, it's kind of just branching out from there and being able to talk to uh, people who maybe aren't in uh, your target audience and just to branch out somewhat, but this is not an easy task, right? Like mm -hmm. one podcast series is not going to, <laughs> to change the, the future of the narrative around mining, but it is a start and a move in the right direction. And even, you know, the fact that we won um, uh, that podcast award last year, I mean, it's, it's an indication that uh, again, I think we're reaching a different audience that uh, hasn't always been uh, in the crosshair, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's a great call to action for any industry, right? It's to, 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 to kind of put the uh, burden on those within it to kind of tell those good stories and spread, spread that word to kind of dispel some of those misconceptions. I think certainly mining is, is a great example of that. One of the things I did want to ask, and I apologize if this is already out there, but are there plans of doing other seasons uh, for This Is Mining? Well, I hope so. I mean, I think that uh, we've had lots of success with the series and, and I've been so excited to be a host and my company has been doing the technical production on the series as well. So we are we are ready. We are ready in 2022 uh, to do another series and hopefully that happens. And I still think there's lots more stories to be told mm -hmm. and lots of opportunity to tell those stories. And and we've also learned uh, along the way, and, and I would love also at some point to be able to do some video content as well, you know, mm -hmm. get up to Sudbury. Uh, Sudbury is a place I've learned over the past two years because of this is mining. Uh, again, I had this sort of narrative in my head of what Sudbury looked like. And then when you think about the re-greening of Sudbury and how beautiful it is, I just want to go there and explore it and see it for myself. And I, I hope other people in Ontario get that opportunity as well. Well, if you if you ever make it up here, for sure we could we can give you some stopovers, uh, get get all the Sudbury landmarks out of the way, and I think certainly talk about I think a lot of the work and innovative work that's happening here in Sudbury in the mining sector. I think Steve's doing a great job with that with our Center for Smart Mining at Cambrian and facilitating R and D with companies. Um, but I kind of wanted to ask you this as well, and again, this is admittedly a like a pretty broad and open ended question, uh, so you can kind of take it in any direction you want. But again, having you on the show, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about some technology trends you're currently seeing in Canada and what are the ones that you're most excited for right now in 2022? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, um, you know, this year was the first year I didn't really do an official trends report because I kept <laughs> seeing so much content around the future of technology trends. I was like, ah, oh, everybody's covered it. I need to do something a, a little bit different. But I do think when it comes to trends in the future, I, I think um, AI and automation continues to be top of mind in terms of trends that are going to shape our future. I'm really excited about uh, the possibilities in terms of what's happening in Canada with uh, ag tech, um, you know, the future of agriculture, again, is much more sophisticated, just like mining than people 
know mm -hmm. at this point. Um, you know, people have this preconceived notion of what happens on a farm, and then you go to a you know a high tech dairy farm, and you, you're just blown away that the cows have Fitbits. So <laughs> that's just one example. <laughs> I could go into that forever. So I think AI and automation is a big trend. Uh, we can't uh, ignore the fact that because we have been living through this pandemic for almost two years, that um, health tech and wearables, I think, are another trend that uh, is going to continue to uh, explode in popularity, uh, particularly wearables. You know, the fact that you're able to get data at your fingertips that uh, can tell you everything from your blood oxygen levels uh, to your sleep and your strain and all these other details is pretty incredible. So people harnessing the power of data for their own health, uh, that's an exciting space. And uh, I, I think also the future of work is an interesting trend to pay attention to. I wish we were having more conversations about this, but when it comes to the future skills that are necessary across all industries, I don't know if we're doing the best job in terms of preparing people for what's ahead, knowing that uh, AI and automation has only accelerated during the pandemic and uh, the skill sets that people need uh, have also changed along the way and how do we get Canadians up to speed. So that that's probably the one that worries me the most. Yeah, gosh, we could have a whole podcast episode on that, I'm sure. I mean, uh, that's something that Mike and I live with every day. You know, on a lot of the projects we work on, we employ students and and they get, you know, a really good firsthand account of what's coming down the pipe when it comes to AI and things like that. But I don't think that that's evenly uh, spread across all locales across Canada and something we should definitely keep an eye on. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think there's lots of organizations that are trying to ensure that future skills are top of mind. But sometimes I just feel as though the the conversation across the country, you know, we tend to get caught up in these, uh, you know, hot topics of the day, the the trending uh, Twitter debates, the, the memes, the whatever it might be. And we <laughs> forget to actually talk about real problems and real issues that people want to discuss. And I think, unfortunately, long term, this could do some serious damage that we're incapable capable of kind of unifying on the fact that uh, the world is changing and how are Canadians going to be able to adapt because we seem to be sort of living in the the weeds, so to speak, and arguing about a, a whole bunch of other things. <laughs> yeah, we need to gain a bit more, uh, a few more uh, thousand feet of perspective, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And and I think, um, again, it's been a challenging and stressful time for people, but uh, we can't necessarily proceed in the future in the same way that we always have. And so uh, if we know industries are accelerating at the rate that uh, all these reports say they're accelerating, what are we doing to be able to keep up? And uh, I think, you know, there's a, a real opportunity, again, to think about future skills, particularly digital skills, and how to kind of upskill people within this country, or else we're going to look at, you know, some significant job loss in the future. Yeah, well, I'm glad someone with your platform is thinking and caring about that, because I'm sure it'll, uh, it'll stay in the, uh, or at least get into the spotlight at some point. Um, I'm going to reveal myself as a huge nerd right now. And uh, if this is not an interesting answer, or if you don't have any particular feelings about this, uh, we could cut it all together. Um, but I was a big Rhodes Avonlea fan growing up. And when I heard you were from PEI, I thought it would be interesting uh, to have a little bit of fun around this. Um, it's it's interesting because I know for a fact that was actually shot in uh, Ontario largely, um, but it did highlight uh, sort of the beauty, not only of the, the, the natural landscape, but of the people of PEI. And one of the characters on the show that I remember uh, fondly, because I had a, a penchant for the sort of innovation and inventor persona when I was a kid, uh, was Jasper Dale. 
Uh, he was an inventor who was always coming up with like crazy inventions that were typically a result of the problem solving you need when you're faced with the kind of rurality uh, that you'd have, you know, in small towns. And I know you, it's, it's really interesting. You touched on this early on that that sometimes, you know, sort of breeds invention. So first, <laughs> were you a Road to Avonlea fan? Um, and then second, do you think it is those kinds of rural settings that after, often inspire some of the greatest innovations or at least innovative thinkers? I love this question. And um, first of all, I, I shouldn't say this, but I'm surprised you're a Road to Avonlea fan. I didn't, that wouldn't be the first thing that uh, spring to my mind, but very cool. <laughs> um, you know, aside from, um, you know, my early days reading a lot of Ellen Montgomery's work, uh, I would say that I'm a big fan of all of her work in general. And I do think that in some ways she was a little bit ahead of her time. And we don't talk about this very much, but even growing up in PEI, seeing a character like Anne of Green Gables. If you mm -hmm. think about Anne as a character, you know, she is a pretty hardcore feminist in so many different ways. And she always fought, you know, for, for her right, what she believed in. And, and, you know, in the case of Anne of Green Gables, that was, of course, you know, being able to get an equal education to her male counterparts. She was also quite feisty. And I feel as though it was hugely advantageous to grow up in a place where you have a character like that when when I was growing up in the 80s to be able to uh, model, right? And uh, I think when it comes to inventions and, and the rural setting, I think one of the things that you have in those rural places is just this uh, grit or ability to be able to thrive under all different types of circumstances. And even if you're enormously successful in rural settings, at the end of the day, when you go back to those settings, you are just, you know, someone's daughter or someone's <laughs> son, and they won't let you forget it. And so that I think is what makes rural settings very special. And I think once we start to get uh, high-powered internet into these rural areas, all of a sudden you're going to see the potential for incredible companies, including technology startups, pop up, not in Montreal or Edmonton or Waterloo, but, you know, maybe it's Georgetown, Prince Edward Island, maybe it's, uh, you know, uh, Prince Edward County, who knows where it might be, but I, I think that's going to be really, really exciting. And I think we underestimate the potential that internet infrastructure can play in terms of the future of this country. For sure, I agree 100%. Uh, we had someone from Eigen Innovations, which is which is from the the East Coast, and they're doing incredible things around machine learning and image processing. And they come from a very small town, right? I, I think those those gems are out there, and I think it's that connectivity and the and the access to as many resources as someone in downtown Toronto uh, are just waiting to for those to explode. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, I, I have no data to back this up, so I'm hesitant <laughs> to even say it, but, you know, when you think about work ethic uh, in some of those rural areas, right, people put their heads down, they, they work hard, they're not maybe as obsessed with having beautiful plants cared for by other people that they pay, <laughs> uh, because, you know, uh, they don't need plants. <laughs> so there you go, they're good to go. Or, or if they did have plants, they'd be watering it themselves, and they'd be tending, <laughs> tending the soil themselves, right? They exactly. Wouldn't... They'd be picking their own potatoes and bringing them in for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, Amber, you've been so generous with your time. But again, what we always like to do before we let let our guests go is we want to, you know, kind of what, what goes on in your life beyond, you know, what we've been talking about today. So when you're not running, you know, the Amber Mac Media Empire, what do you like to do in your spare time? 
You know, I have to say that uh, my entire life is really built around technology in many ways in the sense that that's what I read about. That's what I listen to. I listen to the Pivot podcast with uh, Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher, which I love. And I'd love to listen to podcasts. I'd love to read. I'd love to spend time with my family and, uh, um, you know, go for walks. Uh, but generally speaking, I would say that my hobby is really technology. And that's kind of a, a beautiful thing in the sense that I don't often feel like I'm at work. Like this doesn't feel like work talking to you guys because mm -hmm. we're talking about stuff that we love. And so I've been sure. able to build a life around something that uh, is something that I, I'm really passionate and I care about. So unfortunately, I'm a terrible cook. I, I don't garden. <laughs> I could care less about any material things in my house. <laughs> so uh, at the end of the day, all I've got is sort of digital audio and video and, and learning, right? I'm a lifelong learner and I think probably a lot of people listening to this podcast can uh, relate to that if you're listening to this in the first place. Yeah, we have an executive chef on the podcast coming up in a couple of weeks. So maybe if you want some tips, he was talking to us about how to be more adventurous in the kitchen if you're a cool. layperson. So maybe <laughs> maybe you could, you could get some uh, advice from that. I'm sure Mike and I did for sure. Oh, yeah. I will have to listen to that because <laughs> I certainly need it. I'm one of those people, if you gave me packaged like granola bars and told me I mm. could survive for 10 years, I would just, I'd be good with that. <laughs> well, and he's from PEI. He's at Holland College. They have, uh, oh, cool. they have an innovative, uh, well, they have the Culinary Institute of Canada, but they also yeah. have Canada's Smartest Kitchen where they do R&D and product development, recipe testing, all that sort of stuff. So, so cool. That is awesome. Awesome. Yeah, you know, it, there's a lot of cool stuff happening in PEI. I'm super proud of uh, all of the innovation I hear coming out of there. And that's just a, another super cool example that I did not know about. So when I get out there this summer, I will for sure check it out. There we go. Making the connections. We tied it back to a previous episode, which I understand is good when you can link those episodes <laughs> together in the podcast. Yeah. So, so thanks for letting us do that. Absolutely. No, I mean, listen, if there's a PEI connection, I'm all over it. <laughs> for sure. So listen, Amber, it was great to have you on. I'm sure we're going to keep watching all the wicked things you do. And it was just really glad, uh, good to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, guys, thanks so much. And congrats on everything that you're doing as well. And uh, happy to be here and good luck with future episodes. Yeah, thanks, thanks. so much. We're looking forward to season three of uh, This Is Mining. If the OMA is listening, we want that third <laughs> yeah, season. Make it happen. Come on. I don't, I don't know anything, Zip Zip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah. Right thanks. thanks, Amber. Steve, I have to say that I really appreciate that you thought that Amber and the guests or, and the listeners didn't realize you were a nerd <laughs> until the eighth question when you brought up Bro Davenly. Yeah, I know. I think I've probably outed myself if there's any loyal listeners out there that I already am. But uh, no, Road Tevin Lee was a big thing in our household because uh, I think I said uh, we only had three channels and one of them was CBC on the old TV. So uh, not only do we get the Sundays, we also got the daily uh, repeats at four o'clock. So right off the bus into the house to watch Road Tevin Lee. Well, I thought it was a good question. Her answer was actually really good too, because she obviously tied it all back uh, to tech trends in Canada right now. So I think um, it landed well. Uh, she was obviously familiar with the genre and also as a, as a true pro was able to tie it back to our convo. But I want to pick up on some, one thing that you said that I don't think, um, you know, I think the fact that we started a podcast about work, I think that as soon as that first episode dropped, we, you know, we'd outed ourselves as, as true nerds. Right. So <laughs> yeah. The fact that we're doing this as part of our jobs, I think. Makes... Yeah. As I say, that was that we lost that 40 episodes ago. Right. So. Yeah. 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 We have no credibility. We're not cool anymore. 
but having guests like Amber uh, makes us a bit cool in the podcast world, I think. Oh, absolutely. It, it can't, it can't hurt us. I think it can only help us. I mean, it might hurt her appearing on our podcast <laughs> on, on the lowly unlikely innovators, but, uh, but no, it was great for her to come on. We really appreciated uh, having her, I think. And, and if she were to come back a second time, then it would be, what would it be, Steve? I think it'd be the return of the Mac. <laughs> oh, coming okay. in. Coming I think in we, should, we should probably leave it there before I get in trouble. <laughs> All right. Cheers, everyone. See you next week. Bye, everyone. The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining.